Welcome to the Overpack Classic and Dave Podcast. I am Jason Nan, and with me as usual is Rich Critch. Hello, Rich. Hey, how's it going? Doing good, man. Um, yeah, feeling like, uh, I don't know, like I'm not like necessarily in two places anymore. Like I was always feeling like I was doing, you know, too many things at once. <laughs> like I was dominated by competing things and now i'm just doing one thing and it, it feels much okay. better yeah yeah i I, th- I was wondering if you were going to go with the uh in terms of the show because obviously two sport athletes you everybody read the description anyway but uh that you used to host russell you know russell spective radio oh, and sure. the back podcast yeah. so like you're you're doing wrestling and basketball something that i know nothing about of, of trying to tackle wrestling and basketball at the same time I and mean, thank god i don't have to uh do that but uh yeah so i thought that's where you're gonna go with the intro but uh, i like the way you did it as well i think there was many different ways two or more possible ways that we could have done that intro and and i think you uh, you found one of the good ones. Oh, so. I appreciate that, Rich. I uh, <laughs> intros are not always our strong suit, so I, I appreciate. No, we've gotten worse than them. We used to be pretty good. Now <laughs> yeah. we're off the. I think I think in like give it another few weeks and we'll be right back on it. But it's been it's been a struggle for a little while. Much like uh, some of these players' careers that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. So. Absolutely, we're trying to balance two sports at once. It's it's a difficult thing, or two you know trades at once. It's a difficult thing. So so absolutely, <laughs> I, I do like the wrestling uh, basketball thing that I would have been a good one to go for. If we actually like pre-plan this stuff, maybe that would you know, right. If we talk before. We hit record, but you know, right. that's, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Who wants to that's do that? For noobs, noobs do that. Yeah, noobs do that exactly. Once you've you know got almost 200 episodes uh, <laughs> in on a podcast, you know, you, you stop worrying about that kind of stuff. Thing. So, anyway, yeah. So we are talking about um, NBA uh, players who uh, also uh, excelled in other sports, most most of them professionally. So uh, some guys did so uh, before they entered. Uh, the NBA, some did actually uh, play two sports at the, uh, well, during the same year, not at, literally at the same time, and, uh, and and some did so after their career. So we got a, a nice, well-rounded bunch here. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, group here, and, and there were a few guys that we, um, and, and we're going to get to, like, there's a big list at the end that we're going to get to of guys that we didn't cover, but for this purpose of this, we just kind of picked out six guys, you know, three apiece that we thought had interesting stories or had um, something that we, we at least had to talk about um, in, in terms of these famous, you know, two-sport athletes, but there are plenty, uh, NBA two-sport athletes, I should say, but there, there are plenty, but we're going to get to the big giant list at the end of the show, but uh, for the purpose of this, just six that we kind of put an extra little microscope on. Yeah, so the first one is uh, Will Chamberlain, uh, obviously. I've heard uh, of him. Yes, <laughs> That's what was his first sport? Uh, well, let's let's not go into that. But um, track. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. There you go. Yes, yes. that Ooh. was good. I didn't know where you were going there. That was all good. right. It took me like three seconds, but I got it. Yeah, nice. there you good go. Job. Nice. So um, yes, he, he uh, actually before basketball, he was an accomplished uh, track star, competing in high jump, uh, shot put. Uh, was a uh, was a sprinter. Also uh, did things. Uh, was there later on? He, there was um, a, a lot of talk about trying to box Muhammad Ali that never actually happened but apparently he was somewhat serious about the idea uh and also looking into you know pro football someone of you know his stature his you know incredible athleticism all that good stuff there was uh always wondering how he was in other sports and the ones that he did compete in he excelled pretty well at and uh and after basketball, uh, he retired. Um, still was, you know, an effective player at the end, but he got into a contract dispute with the Lakers, tried to play in the ABA, ended up just coaching there instead, and then walked away from basketball and then got into uh, volleyball. And he uh, helped form the International Volleyball Association, which was a co-ed professional volleyball league in the U.S. from 75 to 79. He actually was briefly its president in 77. And he didn't necessarily compete a lot, but he sort of popped in and out there, uh, played for several teams including the Orange County Stars, the Albuquerque Lasers, the Seattle Smashers, and the Southern California Bangers. <laughs> I'm going to guess that he came up with the last two names. 
and he smashers and bangers. He, he actually owned the bangers. So, uh, oh. you, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, appropriate given everything that we later learned about Twilt. Uh, yeah, yes, of uh, a Southern California banger. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain is certainly that. Sure, so. yeah. No, if, no if one man that. represents the Southern California bangers, it is Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah, I mean that's it's pretty. I'm not sure how right much there. smashing he did in Seattle, though. Uh, I, I, both on and off the volleyball court. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean the Sonics we were only in the league for a few years toward the end there, so right, um, yeah. of his career, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was one of a few examples of a professional sports league where uh, men and women competed on the same teams, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, that's rare. I mean, that really, I mean, can, how many others have actually even done it since yeah. or after? Or before uh, I, mean, after? I mean, I mean, let's really. Let's count like Rock and Jock or, um, you know, something like that. Yeah, not, uh, which you would not, <laughs> but right. But if you did, that would be an example, yes. But uh, yeah, it's kind of a cool thing. Anyway, um, so in his book, he uh, talked about uh, his second book, Review from Above 1991. Uh, talked about where he actually was uh, chosen MVP in a all-star volleyball game that was nationally televised at NBC. We'll have a little bit more about that later. Uh, and then, you know, really got into it late in his life around age 33 or 34. I, actually, I think he first got into it when he was recovering from a pretty devastating uh, leg injury that kept him mm-hmm. out for most of the season. And he, he sort of used that and used kind of running in the sand in, in a way to, uh, uh, you know, to kind of stay, uh, to build his leg strength back and to actually uh, compete. So he was really into it. Uh, he was able to get a all-star game televised on NBC and was actually um, named to the Volleyball Hall of Fame and one of the few to uh, be a Hall of Famer in uh, two professional sports. So uh, pretty cool there. And then there's a story that the uh, former uh, IVA pro uh, Byron Schumann uh, talks about. Uh, Byron Schumann. Uh, he has an interesting name. He uh, what he had play, was a player coach for the Tucson Sky in 1978, talking about this all-star game, which I think is the same one that was nationally televised. And uh, he had been quoted as not really intending to, but sort of talked about the deficiencies in Wilt's game as a volleyball player because you know he was a really good hitter. He was really strong and tall, but it wasn't you know that that good at some of the other things that are uh, effective in volleyball. So that got in the paper, and then they they had a game, and then uh, Wilt just came out, and the quote is. Um, I've seen three Olympics and a lot of world-class high-level volleyball, and he played as well as any hitter I've ever seen. He was playing against some world-class players, and I can't remember his stats, but it was something close to a 90% kill rate. I guess a lot of it was attributed to me in that headline. And then he later made sure that uh, he uh, told the reporter who wrote the thing that he was misquoted, and uh, and that was later written. And then he ran into Wilt a year later, and then they laughed, and he said, don't worry about it. So Wilt, Wilt did not uh, harbor a grudge in that uh, situation. But uh, Yeah, and in the, the article in question, uh, and I'm I'm sure you can find it as well. A lot of it's just like, you know, he's not refined. He doesn't he doesn't do this quite right. Like, this isn't perfect. Like, just a guy giving probably his honest thoughts about, you know, Will Chamberlain in terms of a guy who wasn't a refined volleyball player at that time. Was, a, you know, obviously a basketball player starting to get into this game. But then, yeah, obviously something uh, something triggered into Wilt. And he was like, nope, I'm going to show you. I'm pretty good. Yeah. But, yeah, natural and, athleticism can take over, too. And, and he's a guy who I'm sure, like, when you're watching him in, in practice and other stuff, is probably not giving 110%. But a televised all-star game that he kind of really tried to get uh, out in the open there and really was behind i'm sure you you know that was full effort wilt right there and you see what you know just what a great raw athlete he was yeah and this uh not entirely related but he also did sponsor a um professional volleyball and track and field teams and uh also uh teams for girls and women
Richmond in uh, basketball, track, volleyball, and softball. He devoted himself a lot uh, in the 70s and later in his life into uh, promoting women's sports and to, you know, um, and he was credited for doing a, a lot for uh, women's sports as just, you know, a thing that he was uh, really interested in uh, in doing and, and he was given a lot of credit. There's, there's a recent book uh written about him kind of got into a, a lot of that kind of, you know, post-basketball life. So he deserves some acclaim for, uh, for doing yeah. the good stuff there. Yeah. And you don't hear about that too much. I mean, you hear like what we were joking about around, you know, you know, about sure. his, his sure. you know, his off court life and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's always kind of jokes and laughing and, ha uh, ha. Uh, but you don't hear much about that, that he was very, you know, into, into, you know, growing these sports leagues, growing these professional leagues, making sure people got paid to do their passions or whatever, which is an awesome thing. And always something that we, you know, in many ways will got in trouble for, even when he was in the league is, is like, this is a guy who was sometimes worried about stuff other than basketball. And that was, you know, a big no, no or whatever. And then we see, you know, he ended up retiring that that's what he ended up doing is, is, hey, I have a ton of these passions, and I want other people to kind of fulfill their passions and, and make some money for it. So that, that's always pretty cool. Yeah, I'm glad that, that, that you sort of brought that up and that it's been given a little bit more light uh, in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. All right, move on to another volleyball player here, Greg Lee. I, I promise this will not be all volleyball. We will get to other sports here in a bit. we got to talk about Greg Lee here. So he enjoyed, uh, the name might sound familiar to some people, uh, he enjoyed a ton of success in college as a member of the UCLA Bruins. Uh, when he arrived at UCLA, obviously at that time, freshmen were not allowed to compete on the varsity team. No problem. So Lee and his fellow first-year classmates went undefeated. They got a 20-0 record. You may have heard of some of the players. There was uh, Keith Wilkes and then a guy named Bill Walton that was on that team. Uh, yeah, they uh, they did pretty well. Uh, not a bad team. <laughs> they yeah. uh, eventually then would go to the varsity level where guess what they were also still good because on uh, 1971-72 they had a record of 30 and 0 uh, they won their games by an average margin of 30 points or more and they won a national title uh, the team at that point featured seven future NBA players so again not too bad uh, Lee and the Bruins then went back to back and once again going 30 and 0 so they went back to back titles undefeated two straight years uh, unfortunately the following season both streaks would end uh, Lee and the Bruins regarded as one of the most dominant teams of all time uh, even with the streak ending both you know the win streak and then they lost a uh, title to NC State. Um, but yeah, in that time, they won 88 games in a row uh, during Lee and Walton and, and Wilkes and a few other guys' time. So a uh, pretty important time there. Lee, uh, he was drafted by both the NBA and ABA. The Atlanta Hawks drafted him in the seventh round, 115th overall in the NBA draft. Uh, and then the San Diego Conquistadors drafted him in the fifth round of the ABA draft. Uh, he chose the Conquistadors for, I'm sure, a number of reasons. I'm sure being in Southern California was was one appeal. And obviously the fifth round versus, you know, the the, the fourth, or seventh round, rather. Uh, and the ABA, obviously, at that point, was bringing out some big money for big guys or whatever. You know, you get a guy who was a big-time college player in L.A. You get him to go to San Diego. There's a lot of stuff that would make him pick, in my mind, San Diego over Atlanta. Though at the time, it seemed a little strange. But, you know, that was at the time where a lot of people were surprising uh, uh, pundits and surprising journalists by going to the ABA because there was a lot of stuff there for the ABA to do. But... Um, yeah, as far as the Conquistadors, I didn't do a whole lot. He averaged uh, 3.6 points per game, 2.6 assists per game uh, in just five games. Uh, the next season, he would then move on to the NBA. He would go to the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, there, he averaged only 1.2 points per game and, and two assists per game. Only played in five games. So, again, like not too much there uh, in terms of the NBA career. But what was interesting about Greg Lee is his post-NBA career, which was his prowess at, again, like similar to Wilt in, in some ways. Uh, but Greg Lee was an amazing beach volleyball player. So, uh, Lee's older brother, John Lee, uh, he himself was an account accomplished beach volleyball player and got um got greg into it uh, in 1972 greg played his first open at the laguna beach open he finished second with teammate ron van hagen uh, his first open victory came with tom chamels at the uh, 1972 santa barbara open uh and then lee would advance to the finals four more times in 1972 winning twice so he's still very early in his career and he's already kind of doing well uh that would sort of 
give some light to what was going to come in the future, which is pretty big dominance here. Uh, he uh, would meet his longtime beach volleyball partner, Jim Mengis, uh, the same year in Santa Monica. Uh, the pair of Lee and Mengis would win their uh, first open tournament together in 1973, uh, the Marion Street Open. Uh, those two were partners on and off over the summers for the next two seasons because Mengis was still in college. He was still uh, working through his volleyball career at UCLA, and Lee was still playing professional basketball for a couple years, uh, both in the NBA, and then he went overseas, I believe, for one year as well. Uh, 1975, they finally came together, began playing full-time, and the two went on a tear. They reached the finals of 10 events, winning all but one. Uh, they dominated events, winning the seven matches of the 1975 season, the first six of 1976, uh, to string together 13 tournament wins in a row. So Greg Lee is, is, is one to uh, uh, win tournaments and win things in a row. He's a win streak type of guy. Uh, that record, that 13 tournament wins in a row, that would uh, stand for 16 years um, in pro, uh, the pro beach volleyball uh, circuit. Uh, overall, for Greg Lee, he entered 62 open tournaments. He reached the finals 39 times while collecting 29 tournament titles. And he was inducted into the CBVA Beach Volleyball Hall of Fame in 1997. Uh, and Bill Walton talks about him a lot in his book. You know, he was someone who they were. Uh, yeah, they were buds. Uh, yeah, they were they were buds. So he talks about him a lot as being you know important to those teams, important for the chemistry. He was a point guard on those teams. So uh, it doesn't mention a lot about his volleyball career, but it is a quite uh, accomplished. We mentioned so we're getting both genres of volleyball here: just regular volleyball and beach volleyball. Yeah. I don't know if there are any other types of volleyball, but the two that I know. Of. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I suppose, but yeah, if you look at if you look at Greg Lee, you'll see why he was buddies with yeah. uh, Bill Walton. He's got like luscious blonde on locks like definitely a man that seems at home in in los angeles and and san diego but uh, yeah Yeah. dominant dominant beach volleyball player yes maybe there's grass volleyball oh that's true yeah i mean yeah you could you could play volleyball on grass i suppose Um, yeah i don't know if professional you know (laughs) professional grass i don't know yeah amateur grass volleyball definitely i've played that in fact so yes yeah i did uh reasonably accomplished i'm glad we're yeah, no, you're basically a two-sport athlete yourself. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, we're, we're talking volleyball here. Um, I, I actually went and saw a professional, the, the championships of the AVP Beach Volleyball uh, this weekend. They were in Chicago at one of the beaches there, and uh, my mom wanted to do uh, – I had a day off, and my mom wanted to hang out, and I was like, all right, what do you want to do? And she wanted to go. So I, it, it's all volleyball here. I think I'm just going to go volleyball now all of a sudden. Like, screw basketball. That's stupid. Wrestling's dumb. All volleyball from here on out. Yeah. Well, what would our volleyball podcast name be? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, if I knew any of the volleyball terminology. Volley and surf? Uh, I don't know. Crap. Yeah. Kill? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, don't I don't know. know. We'll, we'll have to table that one. See if, any, see if the <laughs> yeah, listeners let's, let's, come up with a good volleyball. The listeners will definitely thing. come with some good. Yeah, let us know. For our, our pivot, our eventual pivot to uh, volleyball, Yeah. Uh, let us know then what our... Uh, yeah. I did actually find out in researching Greg Lee that there was like a pro volleyball database. Like it was like, It's like the basketball reference of volleyball, which is pretty cool. It did show me, though, that Greg Lee made like $3,000 his entire beach volleyball career. So yeah. not something you made to uh, retire on, but hey, still very accomplished. Yeah, I'm sure pos- podcasting about it will be lucrative, though. I'm sure there's an mm-hmm. untapped audience of volleyball. We will- we will definitely there. make more than $3,000. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I'm not very confident in that, actually. Yeah, well, that's fair. So, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, next we have our favorite um, NBA player and executive, uh, Danny Ainge. Uh, he played volleyball, too? <laughs> he did not play volleyball. However, he did play baseball oh. uh, professionally. Most people probably know that, but there's actually a lot more to um, sort of his uh, – battle from getting to uh getting from the blue jays to the celtics which i thought was uh which i didn't know about which i kind of found interesting but yeah so he was uh he played basketball at byu in college and was successful there he hit one of the uh, most memorable shots in the nta tournament he uh, drove down the length of the court and hit a layup with two seconds left uh byu upset uh, notre dame uh, in the uh, tournament 
And uh, while he was an accomplished basketball player at BYU, also played baseball. He mostly played second with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, not a strong baseball player, even by his own uh, admission. He had a first career 220 batting average, uh, 533 OPS, which is not good. I, I don't know no, all about good baseball at all. Stats, yeah. <laughs> That's horrible. No, not not so good. Yeah. yeah. And, that and is the, what you would assume Danny Ainge, who doesn't look like the strongest man in the world, would get in, in baseball. Yeah, that's that's hitting sure. a lot of singles, and that's it. Yeah. So, so um, yeah. So he was not a not a strong. You know, I mean, obviously played professionally. He was good enough to to make the majors, but sure. Yeah, not, oh yeah, not, yeah. not effective in so. the. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, we're we're going by standards here, but. Um, yeah, so he decided, eh, you know, once he his college eligibility was up for basketball, he was kind of like, well, not really enjoying this baseball thing. He told the Blue Jays that he wanted to uh, leave for the um, wanted to leave for the Celtics and thought that they got permission, and then uh, and then they said uh, and they said, oh, not so much. So he uh, told Jack McCallum uh, at, during the uh, NCAA Finals, uh, I failed at things before. I think I failed at baseball the last three years. I've set goals for myself, and I haven't come close to them. If I keep failing for a certain period of time, I'll definitely try something else. Basketball? Probably. And so that signaled to uh, Red Auerbach and others that, uh, you know, they should try to go after him. So uh, they ended up drafting him. The Blue Jays sent letters to all 23 NBA teams before the draft in an attempt to uh, dissuade them from uh, spending a draft pick on um, on Ainge, saying that he had a contract with them. And then there was ended up being a, a trial over it, and uh, the jury actually ruled in favor of the Blue Jays. Uh, and then after the trial, the president of the Blue Jays, uh, uh, Peter Bavassi, lit up a large cigar mocking Red Harback and uh, said, <laughs> there's one minute to go and we're 20 points ahead. As far as I'm concerned, Danny Age is a member of the Toronto Blue Jays, and until I am absolutely convinced he's not, I'm not speaking to Arbach and anyone else in their organization. Well, they eventually did settle, and, uh, of course, Ainge went to the uh, Celtics. Before then, there were charges of tampering from um, the, uh, the the owner of the uh, Celtics, uh, Harry Mangieri, and, and Arbach said that they would ask the NBA to investigate charges of tampering against the Lakers and 76ers, who both apparently had sent signals to Toronto that they would pay a million dollars to release Ainge uh, if— after the yeah after the draft there was some sort of time period where the Celtics had to sign Ainge and if it didn't happen after that then he would be able to be signed by anybody so um no, no com I didn't really see anything whether that went anywhere that was you know usually what most tampering things happen but I I found that one uh quite amusing of course given the kind of the the shady dealing that the Celtics were sort of doing with Ainge already the fact that they were then had the gall gall to you know call out other teams on that is of course uh very interesting Right, and similar to what they had k- kind of done. I mean, not necessarily to the same extent, but but kind of done with Bird uh, a few years prior. I mean, not to the same shadiness. That was sort of like kind of a weird loophole that they kind of got around as well. But yeah, sure. it had been a few years of, of the Celtics kind of pulling the wool over some people. So I, I could see the Lakers and, and other teams being a little upset by that. So. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then actually, uh, apparently, um, Danny Ainge in 89 or 1990, uh, when he had been traded to Sacramento, uh kind of got the itch for baseball again and he said that um he said that he was approached by uh the blue jays and then there's a different version of the story that says that he had called the uh, blue jays but uh he said that's the correct story by the way (laughs) given given how good toronto was at that time and the lack of need for a uh slap hitting terrible uh infielder but i don't know i mean i'm not not that danny Ainge would ever lie in in the press that i mean not that it would ever happen but you know i kind of believe the other story but that's yeah yeah so he said that uh angel was clearly saying he wanted me as a utility defensive player for late 
get innings giving infielders or outfielders a blow, maybe playing every three or four days. So uh, he said he said that was a pretty good Toronto team. Had I not had four children and a wife who had been following me through my entire career, it might have been different. I thought about it seriously, but I thought about my family situation and couldn't do it. So um, this is from an ESPN uh, blog looking back on uh, Ainge's uh, baseball career. But he, either way, of course, he did not go back and then ended up uh, – uh, playing for Portland and Phoenix toward the end of his career. And uh, then, of course, now is the executive in the Celtics and, you know, uh, has really done nothing noteworthy during his time with the Celtics that I can think of. <laughs> collect assets. Yes, collect beautiful, assets. Beautiful, beautiful assets. Yes. And, <laughs> yes, Kyrie, and Kyrie Irving. So, yeah. Yeah, so, hey, did, did a few things there. But, no, yeah. let's, uh, let's go there with Danny Ainge. All right, I'm going to move on to actually one of my favorite athletes of all time and a reason I am a uh, still to this day a relatively big Florida State Seminoles fan. It is Charlie Ward. Uh, Charlie Ward, he won the 1993 Heisman Trophy, Maxwell Award, and Davey O'Brien Award as a quarterback for Florida State University. He led the Seminoles to their first ever national championship when FSU defeated Nebraska 18-16 in the 1993 Orange Bowl. Um, and as far as the Heisman Trophy, I mean, he holds the third largest margin of victory in history for the Heisman Trophy. Um, he's third only to O.J. Simpson and Troy Smith. So uh, Troy <laughs> Smith, all right. There. Yeah. yeah, Troy Smith, he's cool, right? Yeah, Ohio um, State, baby, yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah yeah okay there you go so uh, yeah I, i'm not really a big ohio state fan anymore back in the day i was a pretty big ohio state fan so. no you remember troy smith i forgot that troy smith won a heisman i remember because just because similar to I, charlie we, ward, we like, do not forget here in columbus then, yeah right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then when, but like similar to charlie ward it's like he wins that heisman and then you're like yeah you're never playing quarterback again get the hell out of here and it's like oh okay whatever like yeah. that jeez yeah. you know it seems kind of weird but yeah college and nfl is very different games so uh uh so yeah ward um We'll get to his NBA career here in a little bit, but uh, he was all over the place. So uh, he did not play baseball in college, but he was drafted by as a pitcher by the Milwaukee Brewers in the 59th round of the 1993 draft, and then in the 18th round by the New York Yankees in the 1994 draft. Uh, he would never go on to play major or minor league baseball. Uh, he was also an avid tennis player, and he uh, was in the Arthur Ashe Amateur Tennis Tournament in 1994. So he was a busy man in 1993 and 1994. Uh, as far as uh, basketball, though, he uh, he played basketball four years at FSU. Uh, some former teammates he had uh, included NBA players, some legendary players like Doug Edwards, Sam Cassell, and the most legendary of all, of course, Bob Sura. Bob Sura, so, yeah. FSU, FSU legend, Bob Bobby Sura. Bobby S., I should, yeah. I should preface that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Triple-double man himself. Uh, yes. Upon graduation, uh, Ward was undecided about which league he would go pro in, if it was going to be the NBA or the NFL. Uh, he made it known that he would choose the NBA if not selected in the first round of the NFL draft. That's a very good idea from a financial standpoint and a health standpoint, so good on you, Charlie Ward. Uh, teams did not want to waste a first-round pick on a player that might not have might not choose the NBA, and there, and there was also rumblings, too, that most teams weren't really looking at him as a first-round pick anyway even if he was fully committed to the nfl he's maybe fourth run at best because he's a little undersized especially for the quarterback position not a great thrower uh but a really good you know in, in some other aspects of being a quarterback in college but there was worries about how he would do um in the NFL, so uh, he decided, uh, or actually NFL teams decided uh, not to draft him. He was not selected in the first round. Um, he was actually undrafted, and then Ward was chosen in the first round, however, of the NBA draft. He was 26 overall uh, by the New York Knicks. Um, uh, inquiry, we'll get to, uh, again, to the, kind of the nuts and bolts of his career in a little bit, but there was an inquiry made during Ward's rookie year for uh, him to be the backup quarterback for Joe Montana and the Kansas City Chiefs, but Ward at that point declined. He said he was pretty much ready for the NBA and ready uh, to just be a Nick at that point. Uh, and to this day, Ward is the only Heisman trophy winner to ever play in the nba um as far as his career i mean not a ton of super notable stuff like he by the time you know obviously he came in under pat riley and the knicks had still you know just came off of an nba finals appearance 
uh, he didn't get a whole lot of playing time under Riley. Eventually, though, uh, Riley gave way to Don Nelson uh, the next year. Uh, and then after that, tw- uh, with 23 games left in the season, uh, the Knicks got rid of Don Nelson, or Don Nelson got rid of the Knicks. <laughs> Both got rid of each other uh, at that point, and then Jeff Van Gundy took over. Uh, and, and Van Gundy always kind of took a liking to Ward, so Ward started playing a little bit more. Uh, by the 1997 season, he had become pretty much one of the, the, the Knicks' top rotational players. Uh, he started in and appeared in every single game for the next two seasons after that. Uh, one of the more famous moments, though, of uh, Charlie Ward's career uh, game 5 of the 1997 Eastern Conference Semifinals against the Heat. Uh, Ward tried to box out P.J. Brown. You've probably seen this play many times before. Uh, when he tried to get inside after free throw shot, Brown got frustrated, retaliated by lifting Ward up and body slamming him. Uh, this caused a, blend, uh, a bench clearing brawl to ensue. Uh, Miami won the game 96-81. And after the game, Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Larry Johnson, Allen Houston, and Ward were all suspended by the NBA uh, due to suspension. The Knicks were shorthanded. They lost game 6 and 7. And then they failed to advance to the Eastern Conference Finals. Miami would advance, but they would end up losing to the Chicago Bulls. Anyway, uh, some other highlights here before we finish up with Ward. Uh, He was selected to participate in the 1998 NBA All-Star three-point competition. He finished fourth. Uh, he, of course, went to one NBA Finals with the Knicks in 1999. Um, in, in 2004, he was traded to the Phoenix Suns as a part of the blockbuster trade that brought Stephon Marbury to the Knicks. Uh, he was cut by the Suns and then kind of bounced around. He went to the Spurs, uh, the Rockets, and then uh, injuries kind of caught up with him. But at that point, he, he had been in the NBA for a little over 10 years or whatever. So uh, not, not like not like his career got really cut short by injuries, but, I mean, he probably had a few more years in it. But anyway, uh, a pretty decent career for a guy who um, – yeah, Heisman Trophy winner and one of the better uh, college football players of all time to to uh, carve out a little niche as a uh, role player in the NBA. It was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he had a good enough career. I mean, he wasn't a great player or anything, but he was totally fine. You know, t- totally had a nice uh, career. But yeah, he was exciting in college as a football player. I mean, that, I remember how uh, dynamic and exciting he, you know, he really was for Florida State. That, that was obviously a great team as well. So. So, yeah, he, good I, I always had this weird thing with because because he went to the Knicks. Who I, I've always hated the Knicks. You know, obviously living in Chicago and, and just especially that era of the Knicks, I just couldn't stand them. So I always had to like there was this weird thing where he would come in and I like kind of root for him, but then I'd really want them to lose, and they, it was very tough for a few years there. I was not happy with the uh, the fact that the Knicks slow, uh, selected Charlie Ward, not any other team in the league. But that's all right. So next we have uh, Gene Conley, who is. Um... Well, officially one of two uh, players to win rings in two different sports. He won a uh, he, he was a three time uh, National League All Star with the uh, Milwaukee Braves and and the Phillies. He uh, won a uh, won, won a championship in '57 with the Braves. He had a lifetime '91 and '96 record with a 3.82 ERA. Played for four teams. Uh, he was a pretty good pitcher. You know, had decent numbers and you know was. Uh, actually finished third in Rookie of the Year voting in 1954, uh, one spot ahead of his teammate Hank Aaron. So uh, that's uh, uh, interesting. And then he also played on three NBA championship teams with the uh, Celtics. Uh, actually played in the 53 season, then took a break for five years, then came back in 59 through 61, uh, took another break, and then finished in 63 and 64 with the Knicks. Uh, was okay NBA player, uh, 10.2 PER. Uh, 5.9 points per game, 6.3 rebounds per game, and about 16 minutes per game. Uh, it was 6'8". It was left as, as a power forward, although I've heard him described as Russell's backup at center during that time, so I'm not exactly sure, um, 100% sure exactly what he played, but he, he was big enough to be a center in the NBA during uh, that time. But um, he also, uh, before he even played in the NBA, he actually played for the uh, Wilkes-Barre Barons in 1951 in the American Basketball League, which was the very end days of the... Uh, it was a East Coast league at that point, but it actually dated back to the mid twenties and was the first attempt at a major league. I'd actually forgotten that the uh, ABL still existed at that point, but like I said, it was it's kind of like the forerunner for the you know, Eastern League, which of course was the forerunner for the CBA and you know uh, uh, and all the other minor leagues that uh, that happened. So um, anyway, so um, he. Um, 
so after uh, you know after after his baseball career, you know he uh, was established and played for the Braves. Uh, he went 0-6 in 58, saw his salary cut by 20%, and then he made an urgent call to Red Auerbach. He wanted to come back uh, and get paid. And uh, at that point, they'd, of course, uh, they'd gone from a, a good team that he had played for to a great team with, you know, Bill Russell, Tommy Heinsohn, et cetera, and uh, Casey Jones, uh, Sam Jones, all those guys. And um, so he uh, actually played uh, 12 pro seasons over six years, six in baseball, six in basketball, without taking a break in between. Um, and then, uh, in the spring of 59 with in the middle of a, a playoff push with the Celtics, a lot of times he would of course leave the baseball was his first priority. Basketball was second priority. He delayed reporting to spring training with the Braves and they prompted them to trade him to the Phillies. And he actually would be a all-star that year with the Phillies, uh, 12 and seven with 3.00 ERA. And, uh, in, in a feature about him, he had a quote about, uh, from Red Arbuck saying, uh, Red used to say, well, Gene, the playoffs are over. The season's over. Now you can go down and try to get out of shape so you can pitch which uh that's, <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> um and um you know he he talked about how he um in a profile with los angeles times he said when i look back i don't know how i did it i really don't i think it was so much fun that it kept me going i can't remember a teammate i didn't enjoy i also would say like he thought he's kind of surprised that more players didn't do it because almost all of them had to have off-season jobs at that point because the money wasn't that great so um, he's also kind of famous for having a, uh, a, a famous, uh, three day bender where he, um, uh, he and, um, teammate, uh, Pumpsy Green with the, uh, Red Sox, um, they, uh, left a bus that was stuck in traffic to find a restroom. And then, uh, he ended up, uh, staying at a bar and then the, the bus went away. They checked into a hotel, uh, Pumpsy Green rejoined the team the next day, but then Conley took a hiatus and he attracted media attention att- attempting to fly to Jerusalem. Um, eventually all things were smoothed over and then he was fine, but then the promise that he would refund the money at the end of the season, if he rededicated himself to the team, which he, he apparently did and then, uh, quit drinking and then ended up running a successful paper company for about 35 years and, uh, actually just recently recently passed away on july 4th of this year so um but uh, se- seemed to have a, a pretty good life so uh so uh there's gene Conley for you yeah that's crazy i mean just d- doing the you know six baseball six basketball seasons and without taking a break in between but not you know concurrently doing them just sort of like t- picking one up or you know at some point you know sometimes doing concurrently but also yeah just like picking one up and doing the other it just seems insane especially those sort of sports like we've seen in in, in you know relatively recent history i mean I, I don't know if we're gonna see it much anymore but in terms of guys going from like baseball to football and stuff like that and, and, and sports but basketball and baseball just seems like such a, a wildly different sports to sort of one minute pick up a, a glove and the next minute go out there and, and play basketball especially with it being you know obviously a different era of, of basketball and a different era of pro sports at that time but uh yeah just really interesting there and it shows you too um that the MLB was still his priority and baseball was still his priority. Whereas now I wonder if it would be, I mean, I, I, I don't know what it would be if, if a player hypothetically these days was great at both of those things, what they would choose as their priority or if, you know, teams would really let that. I, I don't see any scenario where a team would even let you bother trying or even attempt to try, uh, let alone even, you know, allow you to try to do two sports at the same time. Yeah. I mean, unless it was someone like LeBron who had just leverage who could, you know, do kind of whatever. Right. Just like, yeah. I am doing this. Do you want me to play basketball for you? They're like, yes, we do. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Whatever you want. Like, uh, other than that, probably not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would imagine, yeah, I guess it would depend if it were an athlete. Uh, probably basketball would be the only, would be the sport where someone would have leverage to do that. Like, even, like, the biggest baseball star, I don't know how important 
uh, they are where, right. you, you know, um, I don't know. It's, it's just in question. Um, and even the, the calendar synced up better, you know, when the season was uh, more compressed in the NBA so that you could basically, you, you know, there wasn't too much of a, um, a overlap between the uh, between the seasons. So you, you they could do that uh, more easily, of course, then than they could today. Yeah, now it would be almost nearly uh, Yeah, nearly right, impossible. exactly. You'd, yeah. miss, you'd miss the first month of the, the basketball season or the first month of the, uh, the the season you'd be doing that. And then, yeah, you go into the playoffs and, like, the season. Yeah, it's yeah. a mess. Now, in the NBA, right? yeah, you, so, yeah, yeah, if your team went to the finals, you wouldn't be able to play baseball until <laughs> right, exactly, June or yeah, July, right. right? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'll be I'll come in three months later in the season. Like, yeah, no, no, don't even bother, man. That's sorry. Yeah, but no, it's, yeah, exactly. it's super interesting, though. Yeah, for him to do that, I mean, is quite the accomplishment, even, even in that era. Right, exactly, um, yeah. All right, then the last guy I'm going to feature here is Nathaniel Clifton. You might know him as Nat Sweetwater Clifton. Uh, so a little bit of story of him after World War II, where he served in the United States Army. Uh, Clifton joined the New York Rens, the uh, famous all-black professional basketball team that toured throughout the United States. Uh, noted for his large hands, which required a size 14 glove, he was invited to join the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, and he played uh, there from uh, the summer of 1948 to the spring of 1950. Uh, during the basketball offseason in 1949, Clifton played for the Chicago American Giants in the Negro uh, Baseball League. That's where that's. 14 glove comes in uh in the 1950 nba draft uh, clifton became the third african-american player to be drafted by the nba after chuck cooper and earl lloyd uh, he played his first game for the new york knicks on november 4th four days after the debut of washington capitals player earl lloyd the first black player to appear in an nba game of course uh we've done uh we, we did a whole show on earl lloyd right or did we uh, just feature him at some point we we talked to when he passed away he we there were uh, it was right when anthony mason and uh and um that's right that's yeah, right okay uh, right. So we did feature him so uh, a little we, bit yeah yeah, so if, if, you, if you're interested in learning more about Earl Lloyd and kind of his history, I mean, obviously there's a lot to, to, to read as well, but yeah, we did an episode. Uh, you just look up Earl Lloyd in our archives and you should be able to find it. Yeah, it was, it was the same as Anthony Mason. We kind of did a, a joint uh, <laughs> memorial there for him. Yeah. Um, so he was already 27 years old when he made his debut. So uh, Clifton in his first season helped lead the team to its first ever NBA Finals appearance in New York Knicks. Uh, they lost in seven games to the Rochester Royals. Uh, he had a really good NBA career. I mean, a pretty decent one. And uh, during his eight seasons in the NBA, uh, he averaged 10 points, nine rebounds per game. Uh, he was top 10 in rebounds in both 1952 and 1953. And he was sixth in defensive win shares in 1953 as well. Uh, he was also named to the 1957 NBA All-Star team. He scored uh, eight points in 23 minutes in the game. Uh, and actually, this is a pretty fun fact. He is still the oldest player in NBA history to be named to an all-star game for the first time uh he's trailed by sam cassell in 2004 anthony mason uh in 2001 and kyle corver in 2015 so uh, good for old sweetlar clifton there um in 1957 he was traded to the fort wayne pistons he played there for one season and then he retired uh, but that wasn't the end of him playing uh, sports though in 1958 he joined the detroit clowns baseball team in the negro baseball league uh and that was alongside former harlem globetrotter uh, teammate reese goose tatum as well so reese goose tatum and uh, uh and clifton on the detroit clowns in 1961 he was coaxed out of retirement so he had retired from everything but in 1961 the chicago majors of the fledgling american baseball league the abl uh tried to get him out and, and yeah he came in and then after the league folded uh in 1962 uh he retired primarily at 40 years old but that was an end, uh, not yet, of his uh, his sports career, maybe professionally. But uh, Clifton played softball for the Brown Bombers and Capitol Records team of the Daddio Daily League. Uh, and he was inducted into the Chicago 16-inch Softball Hall of Fame. Which actually, ironically enough, I uh, I worked two minutes away from that Hall of Fame and I've never gone. And now after this, I am definitely going. I did cool. not know Nat Sleewater Clifton was in the, <laughs> the 16-inch uh, Hall of Fame. But uh, yeah, it's right around the corner for me. I know it's it's not open all the time, but it's I, I've heard it's pretty cool. And 
and and obviously 16 inch softball is a, a huge thing in Chicago and I, I had no idea that he had any sort of background in that or what, what was a dynamic player or, you know played uh, so much to get into the Hall of Fame but I'll definitely uh, check that out now yeah, um, pr- pretty cool I, and actually uh, I think you uh, misspoke the it was the American Basketball League in 61 that he uh, came to and then and not the Baseball League American Basketball League oh did was, I say baseball sorry American yeah, Basketball League yes. and, and it was a different ABL than the the other ABL that we talked about it was a very brief um, the um, Harlem Globetrotters owner uh, uh, Abe Saperstein's uh, brief league that uh, you know competed with the NBA for a season and and uh, was kind of the forerunner for the uh, ABA in some respects it, it had a three-point line and so forth but anyway just uh, a minor correction there yeah sorry sorry to do that but that I know, is yeah, okay I, that's all right I, yeah, I always, no, I, yeah. <laughs> I know there was a few guys that were in uh, George Steinbrenner had a thing to do with the if I'm remembering correctly yeah Cleveland Pipers okay. yeah and uh you know Bill Sharman was uh he was he coached I believe he played very briefly in the uh league and yeah there are a number of notable uh, people who in, involved in the uh, there were a couple of players who uh, jumped mm-hmm. from the nba to the uh, abm I'm, I'm blanking exactly on, on who it was but a couple yeah of, i thought know, jerry lucas was that one or i, I don't remember uh, him. yeah and, he did yeah because he actually joined it instead of going to the nba for a year yeah he yeah yeah and the then, as well so yeah. yeah and i know there were a few other innovations too i know like a shot clock i think they had in addition to like the three-point line that you were talking about but yeah really cool league that uh, yeah unfortunately uh, didn't last very long but yes so uh so a few other um a few other of note just to um uh, to for completion's sake uh the 1946 rochester royals who were the nbl champions they had uh, of course future uh, knicks coach red holzman who's a very good player in his day bob davies and al Servi, who were legends of the uh, early game uh, bob davies really great ball handler uh were part of this team but also the uh the future legendary browns quarterback otto graham who uh the the browns were not set to start until the uh, fall of 46 and so he uh, played with the uh, with the Royals uh, and uh, helped them uh, win a championship against the Sheboygan Redskins uh, in uh, 1946. And besides Gene Conley, he's the only player to win a um, a, a title in two professional sports. Uh, was also an accomplished um, college player. Actually, he um, was a, in, as a senior. He was named a first team basketball All American. So he was he was quite accomplished uh, player in basketball. I didn't realize that he had that college career as well. And another uh, player of note on that team was uh, Chuck Connors, the, who was. The star of TV's The Rifleman uh, also was only played for 14 games on the Royals. Actually, did not play in the playoffs. Uh, he also played uh, a couple years with the um, with the uh, Celtics and the BA before the merger, and um, and then also played 60 games in Major League Baseball from 49 to uh, 1951. And he is credited with the first shattered backboard on a dunk in the uh, BAA, which is a, a story told in uh, Terry Pluto's Tall Tales uh, book. Which is not quite as good as Loose Balls, but is a, a nice uh, read about the uh, uh, early days of the uh, nba so uh, worth uh, uh one that's worth reading as well but yeah so he's uh that's kind of interesting one as well to, to have uh all those guys on that team is is, is kind of interesting yeah absolutely yeah that's a, that's a hell of a team there <laughs> yeah. i mean in terms of uh overall like uh you know 1960s fame and and uh or uh, 1950s uh, 40s uh fame and and uh sports legends too so it's a lot of good yes, stuff exactly there. yeah and there was actually uh, shockingly enough there was actually a browns quarterback who was good at uh at one point <laughs> The last good Browns quarterback, yes. Otto Graham. So. Yes, exactly. Which so, is actually not that big of a joke. I actually don't know if that's much of a joke, is it? Like, well, there's well, Bernie, no, Bernie Kosar, right? Yeah, yeah. Bernie Kosar. Yeah, yeah. post Bernie. Yeah, yeah like, we, we don't want to. Otto Graham, Bernie Kosar, and now 2017. Yeah. So. Yes, listen, we've angered Cleveland people enough. I think we don't we not want to disparage Bernie Kosar. What do we do? Here. What do we do earlier? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure we've done something in the past. So. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, for the day and age. I mean, we, that's true. We had, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so uh, other notable two sport athletes, uh, Scott Burrell was the, uh, only, uh, only athlete in history to be drafted in the first round in two, uh, of the major sports leagues, both the, the NBA, of course, and, uh, major league baseball. He uh, did play in the minors, but, um, but did not, uh, ever play, uh, professionally. Uh, Dave DeBuscher, of course, with the Knicks, uh, was also a pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, we talked about Tim Duncan before. He was a competitive swimmer in the U.S. Virgin Islands was trying to make the 92 Olympic Games before Hurricane Hugo took out his town's only Olympic-sized pool. Um, Keith Erickson of the... Keith Erickson, who played for the uh, Lakers and uh, notable teams, also USC, uh, UCLA, played on the uh, 1964 U.S. men's Olympic volleyball team uh, before going to the NBA. Uh, John Havlicek was in the Cleveland Browns training camp in 62 before he went to the um, before he went to the NBA. Um, Allen Iverson was a I'm not really sure why he's listed on here, to be honest, but he was a he was a star in uh, high school. So uh, I guess that that counts. Uh, oh, he was a great in high school. man. He was, he was a that's yeah. true. I mean, he's obviously I mean, I mean pro, he was really good. Yeah. But yeah, well, we, yeah. We, we, honestly, we, we took we got this list mostly from Wikipedia. So uh, but uh, let's see. Uh, Michael Jordan, of course, we, we he his career has been documented a, a whole lot, of course. But yeah, know, what did he uh, do? Playing for the Birmingham Barons, right? and yeah, he, he did play basketball as well. But yes, uh-huh. uh, uh, Mickey McCarty, who uh, <laughs> was uh, selected by the Chiefs in the uh, in the draft, also selected by the uh, Bulls and the Dallas Chaparrals, and by the Cleveland Indians. All in yeah, everybody wanted Mickey so, McCarty. Yeah, he didn't really uh, play much, but yeah, I think he played for the Chiefs a little bit. But uh, he was drafted by four different teams, so it's really nice if he wanted. Yeah, he played um, four games with the Chiefs, as far as I could find, but uh, never yeah. got any stats on his record. And that was it. That was it for Mickey McCarty, which is yeah. weird for a guy that was drafted in every single league for just to like not do anything at all. It's, it's weird. Yes. So um, Cotton Nash, who played for the uh, White Sox and the uh, Twins, and also briefly for the Lakers, the Warriors, and the uh, Kentucky Colonels. Um, and also had a name that fit more in the 1920s than the 1960s. That's like Cotton true. Nash is a Cotton great Nash. like 1920s baseball player name, but uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Still awesome in the late 60s. Don't worry. The, the, there will never be an era where Cotton Nash isn't a cool name. I just point. meant way cooler in the 1920s. Probably that, fit a little bit that's more. That's true. Right. Yeah. He's one of the top two Cottons that I'm aware of, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. After um, Fitzsimmons or? Yeah, I would say so. Are there any other famous Cottons? Mm. I don't know any off the top of my head. That's the only two. All I right. Know. Well, rely on the listeners to, uh, isn't <laughs> for the other cottons. Isn't, um, isn't there a character in scream named cotton? Uh, you know, I think I only saw the first scream and I saw it like when it first came out and I haven't seen it ever since. So oh, fair enough. I, I, All uh, right. I am not a scream, uh, uh, historian here, unfortunately. All right. So. Unfortunately. Well, we'll have to, yeah, you know, I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. Our, 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 scream history or history podcast. We'll have to, you know, see if <laughs> yeah, that, can, that uh, pivot's not going to go that. very well. I think that pivot's going to be pretty bad. So. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, Aaron Phillips, who's a former, um, WNBA player also played Australian rules of football in, for, in the AFL women's league. Uh, Pat Riley, who, uh, was, uh, selected by the Rockets in the NBA draft also was drafted as a wide receiver for the Cowboys uh Nate Robinson famously played uh football at the University of uh, Washington um Bill Sharman who was uh, part of the Brooklyn Dodgers farm system he was called up but never actually played in the big leagues and uh Jay Triano who uh of course the former Toronto Raptors head coach was drafted by the uh, Los Angeles Lakers and the CFL's Calgary Stampeders in football so those are the uh those are all the ones we know of anyway yeah, if you know any others, please uh, please let us know on Twitter. 
Yes, absolutely. At, at Over and Back NBA. Um, we can be found mm-hmm. there on Facebook as well, uh, Over and Back uh, NBA. You can find us pretty easily. We are uh, part of the uh, Step Back. You can find us there as long with the uh, other goodness as, as uh, the uh, NBA starts to uh, gear up again. There will be a lot of uh, fun uh, season preview and, and, and such content uh, as training camp uh, begins and all that good stuff. Uh, so, yeah, check all that out. Also here, there's another uh, new Twitter account that's uh, popped up by somebody who might be talking on the show right now. That, oh, that's true. That's true. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, NBA 20 years ago is a new uh, Twitter account that we're uh, starting. It's going to uh, be part of the uh, podcast as well. We're going to uh, start uh, looking at the 1997-1998 uh, season. Uh, we're still figuring out exactly what, how we're going to do that, but uh, should be fun, should be interesting. So, uh, yeah, give that a uh, follow as well if you have uh, – uh, not uh, yeah, we're it, we're starting very slowly because obviously it's September and there's not a whole lot going on in the uh, NBA in September. But as uh, you know, things gear up, there's some exciting things coming in the uh, next couple week of uh, in uh, September 1997 uh, NBA history. So we'll uh, we'll be covering that as it happens. Yeah, really cool stuff there. So make sure you're following that and uh, keeping up with everything. Yes, exactly. So uh, thanks everyone for uh, checking us out. We're back again. Soon.